Well, good morning. And uh, I forgot to say this earlier, but if you're joining us online this morning, we want to welcome you as well. Thank you for, for being here with us and for tuning in. And I know it's not the same as being in this room and, and part, of, part of us fully, but uh, we, we, we try as best we can to, to make you included in what we're doing here as well. So uh, it's great to see all your faces today. I, I, I love you guys. Um, as we get started this morning... I would love if you would open your Bibles up. We're going to be in the book or the letter of Ephesians this morning. Uh, today we are, are continuing kind of our, our year-long march that we've been doing through the Bible as part of our, our Read Scripture in 2021 sermon series. It's hard to believe we're already in week 45. But uh, this, this week's scheduled reading, if you've been reading along, and I know some of you have, uh, we've, we've been through two of Paul's letters, two of Paul's epistles this week. We read Galatians and we read Ephesians, but since it's really, really hard to preach two books in one week, I, I had to choose one of those. So uh, this morning we're going to be in Ephesians, uh, largely because thematically Galatians and Romans have so much in common, and we, we've already covered Romans. So we're going to jump in and see what's unique about Ephesians. I think Ephesians represents some new ideas, some new images that, that Paul gives in his epistles to kind of further develop um, so that's where we're going to be this morning. Now, the book of Ephesians is, is unique, uh, among Paul's letters at least, in, in that it isn't clearly being written in response to a particular problem or a particular situation that is happening in the city or with the church as a lot of the other epistles have. Certainly over the last few weeks, we've covered Romans, we've covered 1 Corinthians, we've covered 2 Corinthians. And all of those are addressing some problems, some thinking, some behaviors that, that Paul wants to address in those cities. And Ephesians doesn't do that, at least not in an overt way or not in an obvious way. Uh, one commentator said it like this. He said, for scholars, Ephesians proves a source of frustration because it simply does not contain references to a specific setting or a particular problem. And therefore, all this other external data cannot be brought to bear in the same way as with other letters to build this more you know, detailed picture of the particular situation that's being addressed. And so Ephesians might not clearly address problems per se, and yet nevertheless, there are lots of things that we know still about Ephesus. For instance, we know that Ephesus was, or is, was located on the, on the western coast of modern-day Turkey on the Aegean Sea. We know that Ephesus was a, a very, very important city in the Greek and Roman world, that, that it was a major, major epicenter of worship of the goddess Artemis. Uh, in, in Roman mythology, she'd be known as Diana. In fact, the very first temple that was built in Ephesus to Artemis was destroyed in the 7th century BC. So it was destroyed seven or 800 years before Christ ever walked on earth. And so over the years, several iterations of that temple would be built destroyed, built, destroyed, and so on. Uh, but in the days of Jesus, in the days of Paul, the temple that was, was built, that was standing there in Ephesus at the time, was actually one of the seven wonders of the ancient world. It was, it was magnificent. In fact, uh, it dwarfed something like the Parthenon in Athens by a factor of about four. It was about four times the size. And today, if, if it were still standing, it would be larger than like an American football field. So a very, very large structure, Corinthian columns, the whole bit. We also know that, that Ephesus was the one city that Paul seemed to live in the longest in his journey. So he lived in Ephesus about two and a half years, 
And so he likely knew this church as well or better than any of the churches that he was writing to or spending time with during his, his ministry. In fact, uh, if you remember, we were in Acts not too long ago. Acts chapter 19 and 20 actually depicts some of Paul's time spent in Ephesus. I don't know if you remember this, but there was this riot that formed when Paul had managed to convert so many people who were worshiping Artemis. And so there was this silversmith, a guy by the name of Demetrius, who starts realizing, he's kind of doing the math, like, man, if Paul keeps doing this, I'm going to lose all my customers because my job is to, to make these idols out of silver and other forms of metal. And he's, he's kind of hurting my, my pocketbook. He's hurting my industry. And so uh, he begins to turn other people in the city against Paul. And there's a riot. There's all this ruckus and anger that, that's forming until this city clerk comes in and kind of calms everybody down. So Paul and, and, and Ephesus are, are very, very, you know, tightly woven uh, connection throughout Scripture. And so it's kind of with that in mind that we're going to spend a few moments in prayer, and then we're going to dig a little deeper into our actual letter today. So um, with that said, let's, let's uh, go to God in a word of prayer. Thank you so much, um, as I always do. You know, consider your posture before the Lord, your heart posture, your physical posture, and let's, let's talk to Him. Holy Lord, I'm so grateful for your word. I'm grateful for the chance that we have every week, every day, to, just to be literate people, to have copies of, of your word, multiple copies probably sitting on bookshelves in our home. And we can, we can sit down and we can open it and we can try to understand who you are and, and who you want us to be. And I'll tell you, Lord, as I, as I come into your word every week, I recognize all the ways that it convicts me, that it challenges me, that it confronts some of my, my own heart, some of the things I want, some of the things that I, I do selfishly or whatever. But, but I recognize there are still so many ways in my own heart where, where you're, you're not Lord, you're not King. So many ways in which I, I just, I just kind of march to the beat of my own drum. And so I don't know if there's other people in this room right now or other people watching on, on YouTube who, who recognize that within their own heart. But Father, as, as we come into your word, I, I pray that you would not just give us an ability to kind of understand and, and learn, and so we walk away going, oh, I know, Ephes I know Ephesians better. But the Father, your Holy Spirit would, would find its way into the, the depths of our hearts and expose some things that are within us, show us some things that, that maybe are out of alignment with you, show us some things that are still a work in progress, and give us the courage to really address those things. And so that's, that's my prayer today. I, I pray that your Holy Spirit would be in our midst. I pray that, that everything we say and do to worship you would be done in spirit and in truth. And Father, above all else, I pray that we glorify you with our eyes, and with our ears, and with our hearts, and with our minds today. Let us set ourselves aside and be more like you. That's my prayer. We love you, Father. In Jesus' name, amen. Have you ever had a relationship that changed you in one way or another? Uh, maybe it was a relationship that changed you for the better, Maybe it was a relationship that changed you for the worse. 
But have you ever had a relationship that changed you? I asked that question kind of with my own recollection of when Tiff and I started dating in high school. Because um, I remember there being this, this subtle pressure from friends and other people around us that, that implied that it was, it was wrong to change something about yourself in order to make a relationship work. Maybe this was kind of the conventional teenage wisdom of the day, but I remember the, the, the wisdom being that a person should like you or a person should love you no matter what for exactly who you were, and you should never, under any circumstances, actually have to change for another person, or another person should never actually try to change you. And I remember that stood out to me because I, I knew very much in that moment as a 15, 16-year-old that, that I was actively being changed. I was actively changing as a person in that season of my life. Uh, my relationship with Tiff changed a lot about who I was in a very, very short period of time. It changed how much I was home with my parents. Anybody remember those years when you start dating? It changed how much I you know, was, was hanging out with some of my best friends because all of a sudden I had this other person that I was trying to get to know. It, it changed how I worked and what kind of jobs I had. It changed how I spent my money. Most importantly, it changed how I prioritized my relationship with God in that season of my life. But it changed a lot. And I don't remember anyone coming to me and, and saying anything directly to me like, man, Josh, you're, you're really changing. This is not good. But I do remember this like implicit pressure that I shouldn't have to. I shouldn't have to change who I was just for this relationship. And I thought a lot about that over the years because it, 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 even at the time, it seemed kind of off base. It seemed kind of, kind of wrong to me. And I understood the sentiments, I understood what people were trying to say, but, but I also tried to be mindful of the reality that, that any and every significant relationship that we have as people will, will change us, particularly as, as two people grow closer together. And so it, it wasn't just me changing to grow closer to her, she was also changing to grow closer to me. And 16 plus years of marriage later, I feel like that still very much happens. We're, I'm, we're always changing all the time to be with one another. But, but change is what we did. And so there was absolutely a version of me that sort of predated our, our dating relationship. And then there was a version of me that, that has sort of changed and evolved and developed in the, in the 20 plus years since we've started our relationship. And, and I suspect that some version of that reality is true for you as well. I don't know that for sure, but I suspect it's true. Whether you had a boyfriend or a girlfriend, or a husband, or a wife, or a best friend, or, or maybe even a, a job that you had, I suspect that there was something or someone who has come into your life, and, and you changed as a result of, of that new person or new thing. Is that true of you? Can, can anybody vouch for that? Okay. Uh, one of the weird joys that I've kind of gotten out of my life over the last 15 years or so particularly with, with mainstream social media, you think about Facebook and MySpace and some of those services that a lot of us use, um, is that kind of prior to this, this little 15-year window, most recently in our world today, it, it used to be that you would only like see people grow or change in quick spurts, right? So you, you might like graduate high school and then it wouldn't be for 10 or 15 years later you'd run into somebody at the mall or at Walmart, or at a concert, or at a sporting event, and, and you know, high school reunion maybe, 
And, and suddenly you had to process very, very quickly that this person was not at all like you remembered them. They've, they've gotten fat. They've gotten gray. They've gotten bald. Whatever. Like they've changed, right? They've, they've changed dramatically. And you have to process that kind of instantaneously. Like, oh, you are not at all like I remember you. This is who you are now. Um, and, but I've grown up in this, in this weird world where high school, uh, in, all, in high school, all my friends and I moved from, you know, AOL Instant Messenger to MySpace, to Facebook, uh, all within a matter of a short period of time through our college years. In fact, when I got on Facebook, you couldn't sign up unless you had a .edu email address. It was only available to college students. And so I got on Facebook in college. In fact, I, I went on Facebook this week. These are the very first two pictures that I ever uploaded to my Facebook account as a college student. And I uploaded them on November 28th, 2005. So almost exactly 16 years ago to the day. Um, so hopefully you don't mind me sharing that, but you look beautiful. Um, <laughs> so, you know, we, we get on Facebook, we, we've grown up, we, we connected with all these high school friends and friends from our hometown who are you know, going to universities all over the country. And, and instead of those quick spurts that you used to get, all of a sudden we've watched each other change and grow slowly over time. We've watched them gain weight slowly and go bald slowly and go, go gray slowly and you know, have divorces and have kids and get married and so on. And so I know like social media is not, um, th these aren't its finest days. There's a lot of people who have really complex feelings about social media today and they're all warranted. But with all of its problems, I, I have loved that I've gotten to see so many people's journeys through life where I can, I can watch them change. And we've all done it. We've all absolutely done it. Our, our family lives have changed. Our careers have changed. Our partying uh, habits have changed. Our spiritual lives have changed. We've all changed. And so change is, is sort of the theme for today as we dive into Ephesians this morning. Now, there are, are several prominent uh, doctrinal or theological conversations that flow out of Ephesians. And, and I'm just going to tell you right now, we are not going to have time to sufficiently dive into any of those this morning. Um, Ephesians is one of the foundations for Calvinism or Reformed theology. You'll notice as you read the, the first chapter of Ephesians, the word predestined is used a number of times. Um, more specific to us, Ephesians is one of the foundations that some people use for articulating why churches of Christ feel the New Testament might lean toward acapella music. Uh, Ephesians is also one of the key texts that people use to discuss the roles of, of men and women within the context of marriage. Like, is there a created order within that relationship? And, and so all three of those issues are here and, and represent points of friction within Christendom, none of them, I feel like, really contribute to the central idea or the big idea that Paul is getting at this morning. And so I'm not trying to avoid them as much as I'm trying to stay focused on where I think we really need to be to understand Ephesians as best we possibly can. And so as Ephesians begins, uh, particularly over the first three chapters, Paul's main concern is encouraging and reminding the Ephesians who they are and how they got there. Who they are and how they got there. He explains that once upon a time, uh, all throughout Israel's long history, their understanding, the understanding, was that Yahweh, that God was primarily for the Israelite and Jewish people only. And so Paul says this. This is chapter 1, verse 4. He says, For he, God, chose us, in him before the creation of the world to be holy and blameless in his sight. The us there 
is a reference to the believing Israelites or the believing Jews. He says that they, believing Jews, were predestined for adoption to sonship through Jesus Christ. But then he begins to remind them of how that understanding has changed. Verse 13, he says, And you, he's talking about Gentiles, and you also were included in Christ when you heard the message of truth, the gospel of your salvation. He says, When you believed, you were marked in him with a seal, the promised Holy Spirit, who is a deposit guaranteeing our inheritance until the redemption of those who are God's possession to the praise of his glory. Now, I want you to notice how Paul cycles through various pronouns in what we just read. Uh, Initially, he's using words like us and we to talk about believing Jews. And then he's using words like you to talk about believing non-Jews or believing Gentiles. But by the end of chapter 1, what's he saying? Now he's using words like our. And he's reminding them that the inheritance that comes through Christ is for us and you, for Jew and for Gentile alike. And so for that reason, Paul says he is so, so thankful that the Jews and Gentiles now get to share in this common bond. And we take this for granted now. Um, Because for the last 2,000 years, this has been our reality. I'm pretty sure everyone sitting in this room would be a Gentile. Um, But for for first century believing Jewish people, this this was game-changing information. If you're Peter, if you're Paul, if you're John or Mark or Luke or whatever, this has changed everything to you. It changed everything about what it meant to truly hope in the Lord. In fact, Paul has a word that he, he uses to describe this new reality, and he calls it a mystery. It was something that was previously unknown. And so he says in chapter 3, verse 2, he says, Surely you have heard about the administration of God's grace that was given to me, Paul, for you, Gentiles. That is, the mystery made known to me by revelation, as I have already written briefly. In reading this, then, you will be able to understand my insight into the mystery of Christ, which was not made known to people in other generations as it has now been revealed by the Spirit to God's holy apostles and prophets. This mystery is that through the gospel, the Gentiles are heirs together with Israel, members together of one body, and sharers together in the promise of Jesus Christ. So as you read that and you reflect on what we just read, what word do you notice being brought up again and again and again? Together, together, together. Thank you, Mary Gail. You absolutely nailed it. That's the new reality that Paul's saying. We, we get to be together, Jews and Gentiles, together. But I want you to notice what Paul said in chapter 3, verse 2. He makes a point of not just saying that they will be together, but that he, that Paul, was given a very specific task, or what he will call a grace. And that grace, or that task, was to teach and to minister to a specific community, to the Gentiles specifically. That is his purpose. And so he says in, in chapter 3, verse 8, he says, Although I am least, less than the least of all the Lord's people, this grace was given me to preach to the Gentiles the boundless riches of Christ. And, and so that's kind of the essence of, of the first half of Ephesians. Paul wants 
Gentile believers to realize not only their citizenship in Christ's kingdom or in the family of God, but more than that. He wants them to realize that the beauty and the fullness of the kind of life that God wants and has in store for them. And church, that, that really is the thrust of what I want all of us to see this morning. We share in that kingdom. We share in that family. God wants the same things for us. He wants us to, to understand the beauty and the fullness of the life that he has in store for each and every one of us as well. And so Paul lays out his reasoning for saying everything that he's about to say. He wants them to understand. He wants them to realize that, that teaching them and ministering to them is really his lot in life. This is his purpose. In fact, he uses words like prisoner of the Lord. He even calls himself a captive to teaching them. This, this is very much what his, his journey or, or job entails, to minister specifically to them. So, he's ministering to Gentiles. What does he want them to know? What does he want to teach them? What do they need to understand that they don't currently understand? And so that's the thrust of the rest of this entire letter to, Ephesians, to the Ephesians. It's Paul encouraging with what they need to know now that we all share in this common bond. And so here's what he says. And if you're going to circle or underline anything, make sure it's chapter 4, verse 1. He says, As a prisoner for the Lord then, I urge you to live a life worthy of the calling that you have received. I urge you to live a life that is worthy of of the calling you have received. Some translations will say, I urge you to live a life worthy of the calling to which you have been called. And so as he continues to develop what he's saying here, we learn what that includes. It includes things like humility. It includes things like gentleness. It includes things like patience. It includes things like bearing with one another in love. It includes things like, like maintaining unity and peace, things that, that Paul's been very vocal about with the Corinthians and Romans and others. And so why unity? Well, unity is what characterizes everything that we are now, everything that they are now. This was the, the mystery that God revealed in the Holy Spirit. And so in verse 4, he's talking about Jews and Gentiles. And his point is that Jews and Gentiles are now one body not two. The Jews and Gentiles are filled with one spirit, not two. That they're called to one hope, not two. One Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father, not two. And this is so important, I think, that we understand what Paul is saying here if we're going to appreciate what he's getting ready to say next. Because what Paul wants them to understand is that they are coming into or have come into something that is new and different for them, yes, but it's not their own. It's not their own as if they have their own God apart from believing Jews. It's not their own as if they have their own culture apart from believing Jews. It's not their own as if they have their own expectations apart from believing Jews. I think of it like this. It's like when a person... Uh, enlists maybe in the military or goes into prison <laughs> or, or possibly even gets married. It, it's like one of those events where there's this clear and precise delineation between an old way of life and a new way of life. Has anyone ever walked through those, those moments where things are, are 
drastically different from one moment to the next. You have gone into a rite of passage, a new stage of life. And so you think about like an enlisted soldier. Some of you may have enlisted in the military. I didn't, but my entire family has. An enlisted soldier can no longer live as they had before. You go into the military and for nine weeks or 16 weeks, whichever branch you're in, the very first thing that is pulled into you is that everything has changed. Those, those soldiers will wake up differently. They will go to sleep differently. They will cut their hair differently. They will dress differently. They will make their bed differently. They will speak differently. They will eat differently. Everything they do will be done differently. You follow me? And so why do they do that? Why do they change everything? It's because they're no longer living for themselves. But they're living as, as one community of people with one common purpose, which means they have one common ethic. Everything they do is striving to be one, to be common, to be shared, to be uniform, to be the same. And so Paul very much wants to reinforce a similar kind of understanding, a similar uniformity, a similar commonality. That, that if you are going to be with us, one of us, he says you, you can't quite be or, or behave like all the other Gentiles behave. And I want you to keep in mind, these are our Gentiles who are living in the shadow of the temple to Artemis. Uh, they're, they're used to one way of life. And so he, tell, he says in chapter 4, verse 17, so I tell you this and insist on it in the Lord. You must no longer live as the Gentiles do in the futility of their thinking. He says they are darkened in their understanding and separated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them due to the hardening of their hearts. And so having lost all sensitivity, they've given themselves over to sensuality so as to indulge in every kind of impurity, and they're full of greed. But he says that, however, verse 20, is not the way of life that you learned when you heard about Christ and were taught, uh, taught in him in accordance with the truth that is in Jesus. He says that's not what you guys learned when you came into this thing. This is very similar to some of the stuff that Paul was saying to the church in Corinth as they're living in the, in the shadow of the temple to Aphrodite. Well, these Ephesians are very much influenced by, by Artemis worship. And Paul has a clear reminder and encouragement that their lives in Christ have changed and should change. They are no longer their old selves. And so I don't, did anyone watch the Bible Project video this week that, that went along with Ephesians? Has anyone been keeping up with those? Because I love the way the Bible Project kind of imagined this or depicted it. They sort of equated Paul's following words with clothing. That there's a taking off of old clothes and a putting on of new clothes. And so kind of using that, that military analogy again, think of it like, like going into the military. You take off your street clothes, and what do you do? You put on fatigues. You put on the uniform, so to speak. There's a new purpose, a new calling, and it deserves some new clothes. You follow me? And so he says in chapter 4, verse 22, he says, you were taught with regard to your former way of life to put off your old self, which is being corrupted by its deceitful desires, to be made new in the attitude of your minds and to put on the new self created to be like God in true righteousness and holiness. 
You're taking off old clothes. You're putting on new clothes. And so what are the clothes that you begin to take off as you step into the, to this new way of life? And so over the next couple of chapters, Paul's going to begin to describe those things. He says you do things like take off falsehood. You take off anger. You take off stealing. You take off unwholesome talk that comes out of your mouth. You take off bitterness and rage and anger and slander and brawling and every form of malice. He says you take off sexual immorality. You take off impurity. You take off greed and obscenity. You take off foolish talk and coarse joking. Why? Because chapter 5, verse 3 says, all of these are improper for God's holy people. All of these are improper for God's holy people. They're not befitting of the uniform. And so just like with any team, just like with any community, there's a, a right way and a wrong way to belong. There's a right way and a wrong way to dress. There's a right way and a wrong way to behave and act. And that's the wrong way. Just like on, we're here right now, but anyone who's at home watching NFL games, what happens in a, if an NFL player comes in and they wear their socks too low? Or, or they, they lift their, their jersey up to show their, their stomach? What happens? They get fined. They get fined because they, they, they are supposed to dress and behave in a way that's befitting of that uniform. And so, if we're taking off falsehood and anger and slander and malice and all those things, what are some of the new kinds of clothes that we're supposed to be putting on? Paul says, well, instead of falsehood, put on truth. Instead of stealing, take that off. And do, instead of doing something, instead of stealing, he says, do something useful with your hands to have something to share with those in need. In other words, don't take, give. That's what he's saying. Instead of unwholesome talk, tear that down, the stuff that, that tears people down, he says build others up to benefit them. Instead of anger and rage and malice, he says be kind and compassionate to one another, to one another even forgiving each other. Why? Because Christ Jesus forgave you. During COVID, one of, the, one of the TV shows that Tiff and I have found and, and have discovered we really enjoy watching was a show called Ted Lasso. I don't know if anyone's seen Ted Lasso or heard of Ted Lasso, but it's, this, it's one of the most positive and kind of uplifting feel-good shows that I've seen in a long time on TV. And, and it's very, very human and very real in the way that it does so. And I don't want to say too much because I don't want to ruin this show, but there's this character in the show named Roy Kent that I think encapsulates so well what Paul is talking about here within the, the show Ted Lasso, especially as it moves from season one of Ted Lasso to season two. Um, because in, in season one, I should say this, Ted Lasso is a, a TV show about a soccer team in England who goes and hires an American football coach to come coach soccer in England. And so it's, it's supposed to be a train wreck on purpose, um, and yet it's, it's heartwarming. And so season one, Roy Kent, he's this aging British soccer player you could tell he used to be a superstar. Everyone used to know his name. Uh, he was known around the world for how great he used to be. But, but here he is now. He's, he's playing on a bad team. He's, he's underperforming. He's barely clinging to his football career, his soccer career. And, he, and he's deeply insecure 
about what his identity would be outside of, of wearing that uniform, outside of, of playing soccer. That's what he's done his entire life. That's all he knows. And so as you get to know him, he's like this angry, brooding, gruff kind of a guy. Like, you know, none of that matters, though, because when he's on the pitch, when he's on the field playing, that's celebrated, that, that's encouraged. He's rewarded for kind of having that, that gruff demeanor. That's who he's supposed to be out there. It works for him. But all of a sudden, you, you get into season two of the show, and now he's retired. Now his playing days are behind him, and he's forced to sort of take off the soccer clothes, take off that, that uniform, if you will, and figure out what, what this new life is going to begin to look like now that he's too old to play soccer anymore. And at first, he, he tries really hard to just be this really involved uncle with his niece, and, and that, that's sweet, but there's still a void. He decides, okay, well, I'm going to try to go be like a, a soccer pundit on TV. And so he's, he's on that panel analyzing games before and, and during and after a game, and he realizes now there's still a void. And so finally, he moves into coaching. And it's not just coaching anywhere. It's, it's coaching the very team that he just retired from playing on. But that means that a lot of his angry, brooding, gruff ways no longer work. And so he's not a player anymore. He's, he's taken off those clothes, and instead he's put on these clothes. He's put on a suit. Now he's a coach. And, and that means that his coaching career is going to demand a new way of life for him, a new Roy Kent. And so you get to watch as, as you see this, this person kind of evolve. Um, it's not instantaneous. It's not slow. It's not easy. It's, it's challenging and messy. But he has to learn a whole slew of, of new things and new behaviors like coaching and cheering players that he hated playing with on the same team in the locker room when he's part of the team. But now he has to learn how to coach them. He has to turn a page and approach how to, how to live this new life in a whole new way. He knows he cannot stay the same person he was. He took off those clothes and he put on new clothes. You follow what I'm saying? And I, I just love how his character so beautifully encapsulates kind of the highs and lows of what it's like to learn to change and become this new person who is worthy of the calling to which they've been called. He has to be worthy of being a coach now. That's his new calling. And sometimes the only way that we can become a new person is to receive a new calling. I'm sure this is true of you as well. But as I look back on people that I've known and been friends with throughout my life, I've watched some of the biggest party animals that I ever knew grow into the most soft, doting, loving fathers. But it wasn't until they received a new calling of fatherhood that they finally changed. I've, I've watched some of the worst students I remember in school grow into becoming the most incredible entrepreneurs and business people, so intelligent. But it wasn't until they received a new calling, a promotion, a new opportunity, whatever it might be, I've watched some of the biggest drug addicts and drug dealers grow into these powerfully effective leaders in sobriety communities and ministries, but it wasn't until they received a new calling to kind of lead others out of addiction that they kind of really found themselves in this, in this new role. And so when you think of the story of Scripture, Scripture is loaded with examples of people just like this, people who had to learn how to be worthy of a new calling. You think about Noah. Noah went from a crazy guy building a boat for a hundred years to the, the patriarch of the only remaining family on earth. That's a new calling. 
Or you think about Joseph. He went from being a prisoner to being second in charge in all of Egypt. That's a new calling. You think about Moses, who's this like refugee shepherd living out in the, in the wilderness, and suddenly he's the leader of all of Israel, marching them through the wilderness toward the promised land. That's a new calling. You even think about David, who went from this lowly shepherd boy to the king of all Israel. That's a new calling. And so even as we sit with Ephesians and we think about the Apostle Paul, Paul went from this rising Pharisee who's persecuting and killing and imprisoning Christians to an apostle, one who was sent from Christ and entrusted with teaching the Gentiles about the mercies and love of Jesus. That's a new calling. All of those people had to take off some old clothes and they had to put on some new ones. And the reality is, sometimes those clothes don't always fit at first. Sometimes they don't always feel right. There are successes and there are failures in their story every step of the way, but it was a new calling, and they needed to learn how to be worthy of that calling. They needed to learn how to, how to be second in command in all of Egypt. They needed to learn how to be king of, of Israel and so on. And so that same Paul looks at Ephesians, at the Ephesians, but also all of us. And he reminds us that, that we too have received a new calling. And our job is to live a life that is worthy of it. To live a life that is worthy of the calling to which we have been called. Which means we have some old clothes that we need to take off. We have some old clothes that we need to get rid of to be replaced by new ones. And so Paul writes in chapter 5 verse 8. He says, For you once were darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. He says, live as children of light. For the fruit of the light consists in all goodness, righteousness, and truth. He says, and find out what pleases the Lord. He continues, this is chapter 5, verse 15. He says, be very careful then how you live, not as unwise, but as wise making the most of every opportunity because the days are evil. He says, therefore, don't be foolish, but understand what the Lord's will is. Don't get drunk on wine. In other words, don't be filled with wine, which leads to debauchery. Instead, be filled with the Spirit of God, speaking to one another with psalms and hymns and songs from the Spirit. He says, sing and make, make music from your heart to the Lord, always giving thanks to God the Father for everything in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. That's what it starts to look like. Now church, there's a lot more that, that can be said from the book of Ephesians. But this is the crux of it. it. It's a calling for all of us to take off the old ways and put on the new ways. And those words and that calling have, have deeper, impl deeper implications for each of our lives than we often know or we often realize. Because the, the new ways, the ways of truth, let's face it, they don't always align with the ways that we like to do things. Raise your hand if that's true for you. They don't always align very well, do they? They don't align with the ways we prefer to think or believe or feel. 
They don't align with the ways that we've, we've sometimes been deceived. This is what Paul says earlier on in this letter. A lot of us are living in some form of deceit. And so the question begins to, to kind of creep into our lives is, what do I do when what I want to be true, what I want to be right, what I want to be okay, suddenly comes into conflict with what I see or what I read in Scripture? And what do I do when my marriage gets hard and what I want to do is just leave? And what do I do when I'm on a business trip for work and I meet someone and what I want to do is flirt with that person and see where it goes? And what do I do when, when I'm working on my computer or I'm looking at email on my phone and what I want to do is flip over to my browser and go look at porn? And what do I want to do or what do I do when, when that friend of mine says something hurtful to me or something hurtful about me and what I want to do is, is tell them off and cut them off and be done with that relationship altogether? Or what do I do when I, when I have a beer and what I want to do is have seven? What do I do when I, I see a person in need? What I want to do is just keep driving and not, not be inconvenienced by all of that stuff. What do I do when I'm sitting in traffic and that guy cuts me off and what I want to do is pull up alongside of him and tell him verbally or with my fingers how I feel about what he just did? What do I do when, when Sunday mornings roll around and what I want to do is turn on the TV and watch football all day instead? What do I do when that guy at church asks me to serve and what I want to do is nothing? Would Paul say, hey, just believe whatever you want? Would Paul say, hey, just, just do. Do whatever you want. Or would Paul say, hey, live a life that is worthy of the calling to which you have been called? If Paul were alive today, I, I think he would be more than happy to sit down with us over coffee at Starbucks sit across the table from us, listen to us, and then look us in the eye and remind us, hey, it's time to take off the old ways and put on the new ways. Don't be afraid to change. Changing isn't bad. It isn't something that we run away from. Instead, change is what is necessary to become more like Christ. Raise your hand if you are exactly like Jesus today. Not very many hands went up. Um, no, nobody's quite that brave. And so if you didn't raise your hand, and mine didn't count because I was just modeling that for you, so this is how I actually feel. If you didn't raise your hand, then guess what? There is still change that needs to happen. And it doesn't happen instantly, it doesn't happen overnight. It isn't always easy. It isn't always smooth or even fun. But I've yet to meet a person who found the love and grace and mercy of Christ's ways and came to the conclusion that, that their old ways were better, that their drunk days were better, their, their partying days were better, their promiscuous days were better, their vulgar days were better, their addicted days were better, all of those things. I've yet to meet someone who said, no, those, those were better days. Instead, the wisest and most joy-filled people I know were the ones who learned and believed 
that it was time to take off the old ways and put on the new ways. I, uh, I found out some news this week. I don't know if anyone here knows him, but I, I realized I lost a friend. Uh, not someone I, I knew deeply, but, but a friend nevertheless to COVID. Uh, his name was Steve Orduño. He, uh, he preached and ministered at numerous churches all over the state, from Modesto to Turlock, and eventually Paso Robles, where, where he was living when he passed. And when you sat down with him, and you heard his story, and you learned about where he came from, you heard about a hardened Latino kid from the streets of South Central Los Angeles. But what he became, what he became was a joy-filled minister and servant of Christ Jesus. And in all the times I talked to him, I never once heard him long for his old ways or his old days. I think about my story. My story is, is not anywhere near that cool, not anywhere near that dramatic, but the same is true for me. I have plenty of old ways of doing things, old habits, bad habits, and they have a tendency from time to time to creep back into my life. I recognize that those are the deceived ways within me, the inferior ways. But I also recognize after all these years, I am always happier. I am always more fulfilled. I am always living purposefully when I am taking off those old ways and I am putting on the new ways of Christ. So wherever you might be this morning, I mean, I understand you're here physically, but what's happening in your heart? Wherever you might be in your heart this morning, that same opportunity, that same journey is, is open and available to you. Jesus does two things. Number one, he calls you to seek him, to find him, to be baptized into him and receive a new life. Number two, he encourages you to live a life that is worthy of the calling to which you have been called. And, and if that hasn't happened yet, I trust that his Holy Spirit right now is in your heart whispering gently in your ear that it's time to take off some of your old ways and instead put on some new ones. And so as we stand and we sing here in a moment, wherever you are, I invite you to answer Christ's call. I'm going to be sitting up here in the front row. If you would like to receive Christ in baptism, you are invited. If you've been baptized, but you're saying, you know what, I, I recognize that in a lot of ways, I'm, I'm wearing some old clothes right now, and I've got to take those off and put on some new ways. Would you pray for me? I want to invite you to come and receive prayer as well. And certainly, if, if privacy is more your thing, you're, you're welcome to talk to me in the courtyard after service today. If you're online, you can email us at questions at lakemercedchurch.com. And so as we stand and sing, I invite you to take off the old ways and put on the new ways, and then praise the Lord in all of your new ways. Let's sing.